This story begins with a 911 call. The first shock was that Harold Party's wife was dead. The second shock was that he had a wife. It was a considerable secret to have kept anywhere, never mind Bakerton, Pennsylvania, a town with four traffic lights. Harold's wife had lived among them for 31 years, and yet, when a witness was needed to identify the body, the deputy sheriff could only find two people who had ever seen her. One was Harold. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42 Minutes and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's January 27th, 2020 and today we, we continue considering Tree Fort Season 9 by meeting up with one of the authors appearing at Story Fort. Jennifer Haig is a novelist and short story writer. Her novel, Heat and Light, won a literature award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and was named a Best Book of 2016 by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR. Her previous books include Faith, The Condition, Baker Towers, and Mrs. Kimball, winner of the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction. She is also the winner of the Massachusetts Book Award and the Penn New England Award in Fiction for her short story collection, News from Heaven. She has been published in Bronta, The Atlantic, The Best American Short Stories, and many other places. She lives in Boston and will be presenting A Diamond in the Slush Pile, a tree fort in beautiful downtown Boise at the end of March. Today, for 42 Minutes, we'll discuss her 2012 work entitled Faith. It is the spring of 2002, and a perfect storm has hit Boston. Across the city's archdiocese, trusted priests have been accused of the worst possible betrayal of the souls in their care. Estranged for years from her difficult and demanding family, Sheila McGann has remained close to her older brother, Art, the popular dynamic pastor of a large suburban parish. When Art finds himself at the center of the maelstrom, Sheila returns to Boston, ready to fight for him and his reputation. But what she discovers is more complicated than she imagined as the scandal forces long-buried secrets to surface. Elegantly crafted and sharply observed, Jennifer Haig's faith is a haunting meditation on loyalty and family that demonstrates how truth can shatter our deepest beliefs and restore them. It truly is an honor to be meeting Jennifer today. How are you doing, Jennifer? I'm great, Doug. It's great to be here. Great. Although I said we'd talk about faith, let's just start with Harold. What's the deal with Harold? Where is Baker? Okay. <laughs> what prompted you to do this short work? Well, Bakerton is a place I've written about a lot. It's a little coal mining town in northern Appalachia, very much like the place where I was raised. Um, I've written two novels set in Bakerton and also a collection of short stories. And this story, Zenith Man, is uh, yet another installment in the Bakerton story. And so when I did just a little bit of poking around, is Harold a real, based on a real person where something similar happened? Well, this story is um, based on a court case that was very well known in the 1990s. I remember reading about it back then, I think in the Washington Post. It really was everywhere for a while. Um, so it, it was sort of a celebrated case, a man who was uh, accused of causing the death of his wife. And so that is the, the basic setup for this story. 
Um, my version of it is different in some ways, not least is this setting of um, Northern Appalachia that I write about all the time. It's a, it's a place that I continually go back to in my work. Um, I found that over the years, about half of my work is set here in Boston, where I live now. And the other half is set in this town, which is a place I cannot seem to escape from. So every, every few years, I find myself going back there in my work for one reason or another. So then here's a question. I haven't read enough of your work to be able to answer, but in the two works that I read, there seems to be like an obvious... Uh, point of view where you're just the assumption would be guilt say and and I wonder do you consider the underdog frequently in your writing or was this just a coincidence in these two pieces that I read so what you've read then is uh, you've read faith and um the short story yes is are those the works we're talking about yeah okay um uh, yeah I don't I, I don't know that I would say that's a, a, a recurrent theme so much. Um, I do write an awful lot about class, however. And, you know, I believe as writers, we don't really choose our subjects. They kind of choose us. So um, my interest in class really stems from my background, growing up where I did in coal mining country. Um, I find that it's a subject that is endlessly interesting to me and also um, really largely absent from contemporary literature. There are just not that many writers writing honestly about it. Um, I think as a culture, we're just starting now to grapple with questions of race, that we're probably a generation away from really looking honestly at class. And yet I find that uh, class is at the center of every story I'm drawn to write. And uh, faith is certainly, certainly one of those stories. So that's kind of interesting because as I was reading faith, for whatever reason, I was thinking about Jane Austen and I was thinking about how <laughs> how those kind of books just put uh, social structures, like it just records them in such a way that you can think, oh, yes, this is how, I mean, so uh, I also had kind of a similar instance when the Kavanaugh hearing was happening, and I was reminded of the, you know, just the the way people behaved in the 80s, you know, how culture changes and but like the nicknames and the drinking games and the different things that they did and I was reminded a little bit of that in in your book uh so uh, d in just writing about class do you end up like recording th these moments f for posterity or do you think you're consciously setting out to do that um hmm. Well, I think it's, for me, it's impossible to write about people without considering questions of class. You know, even if we are not aware of our class baggage, we carry it with us. And um, I think part of the mission of fiction is, is to observe the world dispassionately. And to me, part of getting people on the page and getting them right is, is being faithful to that kind of um, fabric they come from. So with Faith, did you, did you choose that title? And, and was that, I'm just cu curious about the kernel um, and, and, you know, where this grew from, because I, it's a, such a great title in that it really speaks to a lot of the different things that are happening in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did choose the title. Um, I think titles are very important. I have strong feelings about them. And I find that I either get them right away 
or I just never find the right title and I end up just going with the wrong one. Uh, I do think Faith is the right title for this novel because, as you say, it's, it, it looks at questions of faith in, in all sorts of refracted ways, not just religious faith, which is, of course, you know, the obvious, um, the obvious context when you're writing about a Catholic priest. But more than that, it, it, it kind of goes to what we truly believe about ourselves, what we believe about our families, what we believe about our communities, some of these unconscious beliefs that um, really shape our worldview. And some of the other thoughts that I had were this family seemed so uh, three-dimensional, I guess. So it was, it was a giant Irish Catholic family in Boston, um, but it, the different—it just it felt so familiar and, and real. I just wonder, mm -hmm. were you drawing on your own past, or was this something that you observed? In do you have a Catholic upbringing? You know, is this something? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, my family is Catholic. I went to twelve years of Catholic school. That's sort of my um. Um, my, my baseline in a way. I'm not particularly a religious person, but I do think um, growing up Catholic and growing up observant uh, really influenced the way I engage with the world. And it's impossible to spend any time in the city of Boston without being aware of Catholicism. You're almost Catholic by osmosis if you live here, because it has been such a presence for such a very long time. It is still Despite everything that's happened, it is the most Catholic city in America, culturally, if not in terms of religious practice. I and mean, what you see right now in Boston is a lot of anger. There's, there's been a real um, you know, shrinking of, of church attendance over the last 15 years since this clergy sex abuse scandal uh, broke in the Boston Globe. People are still really angry. Um, and it's, it's reflected in, in the fate of the church. I mean, the number of churches that have been shuttered in the city of Boston, something that would have been unimaginable 50 years ago, it's happened. People are really disillusioned and are not coming back to church. And, um, you know, it's, it's an ongoing story here. It's still developing. Well, so then how was, how was faith uh, received in Boston itself? You know, it's, it was... Um, I was unsure about what the reception would be like, uh, but I have to say, by and large, um, people have been very appreciative of the book, and I've gotten particularly um, satisfying responses from Catholic priests, which was a complete shocker to me. I was not expecting that at all. Um, but the number of emails I've gotten over the years um, from priests who've read the book and found it to be accurate and fair, and that was meaningful to me because it is not a particularly forgiving portrait of the priesthood, um, but I went to great pains to be accurate. And um, I was glad to hear back from people who would know that, that you know, they felt I'd gotten it right. Something, something else that I was thinking about is that um, you, you write the story from the point of view of Sheila, as if Sheila's telling the story, she's the narrator. Mm -hmm. Um but she's also filtering the story of other characters in the book too, because, you know, she wasn't in those places. So it almost has a slight right. journalistic feel to it. Um, you know, why, why did you settle on, on that and her as the narrator, but her as the filter for the story? That is such a great question. And 
I will tell you that I, I didn't start out writing the book that way. My default setting writing novels is always to write in the first person. He said, she said, he did, they did. And that's how I began writing Faith. But I realized about six months into the writing process that it wasn't the right answer in this case. And here's, here's the reason. Um, in reading about, reading some of these accounts of clergy sex abuse, I was struck by how unknowable these stories are. In most cases, only one person knows the truth of what happened. And it's the priest. Um, often the child is too young or too traumatized even to talk about what did or didn't happen. And the priests often just aren't saying. And so in a sense, these are always mystery stories, trying to get to the bottom of these accusations and understand what really happened and why. And so um, I realized that this novel, Faith, really is a mystery novel. It's the only one I've ever written and probably the only, ever, the only one I ever will write. But it is a mystery story. It's essentially Sheila trying to get to the bottom of these accusations against her brother and, and come, you know, come at some conclusion about what the truth is. And of course she wasn't there when any of these things happened or didn't happen. And she's trying to reconstruct from what people are telling her what plausibly did happen. So it's, that's really what the novel is about, is sort of her, um, her efforts to make sense of all of this and sort through these, these you know, conflicting things that she's been told. Well, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to rack my brain. Has there been any great Boston movies that you can think of off the top of your head? I mean, I think good, um, <laughs> good Will Hunting was um, kind of in that neck of the woods, I think, ish. Yeah, yeah, it was set in Cambridge. It was, yeah, it was set on the, the campus of MIT. So that was Cambridge, which is, you know, just over the river. Um, probably the, um, the Boston movies that have been seen a lot have been crime stories. Um, so something like The Departed, uh, which is sort of a fictionalized version of the, you know, the Irish gangster, um, Whitey Bulger, the, you know, great, um, you know, figure of folklore here in Boston. Um, also, um, other crime films like Mystic River, and um, Gone Baby Gone and The Town. Um, there's, there's a lot of that kind of texture of, of Irish Boston kind of rendered in these crime stories. So you see that quite a bit. And there was also um, a few years ago, a, a terrific film, Spotlight, that dealt with the clergy sex abuse story. That um, The film came out some years after I had written Faith. And it really looks at the team of journalists at the Boston Globe who actually broke this story, the Spotlight team. Um, it's a really terrific film. Well, so you know, the reason why I was thinking about that is because it does it. This this book does feel like it could be cinematic. I wonder, have you had any mm. interest in in that? Uh, yeah, yeah. The book has, has been optioned a couple times um, by film producers, and nothing has ever come of it. <laughs> but that's about par for my work. Um, it's 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 happened with a number of the books I've published that there is. There is some interest and there are conversations that happen and it looks promising and then it you know, never actually materializes. Uh, but from what I understand, that's not uncommon in the film world. Yeah. I mean, it seems like Catholicism, I was raised Catholic too. I didn't go to Catholic school, but I, mm. you know, I did all the, the stuff, the communion and confirmation and everything, but it seems like Catholicism mm -hmm. kind of comes in and out of the zeitgeist every now and again, whether or not it's like exorcism or like you mentioned the thorn birds, you know, that was an interesting moment. 
Oh, I didn't, but but um, but yeah, that's a that was just all my I saw as a kid and enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, as, as far as like a like a hunky priest as the star, it's it, you know, it, I don't know, it would. <laughs> Yeah, but um, so but speaking of of uh, you know points of view and and you know your writing, I'm wondering about your process as far as um, I've been thinking a lot. Uh, I've spoken to different writers about their drafting process and whether or not they can get it all mm. out in the first draft, or if they actually write these these books multiple times before they actually arrive at the place where they they have something. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in revision. I typically do uh, six or seven drafts. I don't think I've ever, I've ever managed to write a book in fewer drafts than that. And often they change radically from one draft to the next. I, I really believe in the process of revision. I think almost nobody gets it the first go around. And um, actually, I'm, I personally enjoy the revision process more than I enjoy the first draft. So the, the first year or two of writing a novel is pure pain for me. And then it gets more and more enjoyable as I get further on. It actually becomes good. But in, and by drafting, you mean that uh, are you actually you have, you know, a, a manuscript and then you start again and rewrite from scratch everything or you just kind of tweak as you go? six or seven times through the whole thing? Oh, it's, it's certainly more than tweaking. Um, I've never tried to recreate the whole manuscript from a blank page, um, although I wouldn't rule out doing it. I know writers who've done it. I've, I've never done that. Um, but, you know, what I'm doing is certainly not editing. It's really reimagining the story um, several times through. And you know, it, it changes in, in pretty dramatic ways. It begins in an entirely different place. It may focus on different characters, different events happen. Um, so a few of my novels have really changed very dramatically from, from draft one, say, to draft three. Faith was 2012, and, and then in 2016, you had Light and Heat come out. I would guess that you're... Heat and Light, yes. Sorry, Heat and Light. Uh, you're <laughs> a, about due for something new any any day now? Would that be a fair guess? Uh, well, no, no. Well, there was also a book in here that you missed. There was a, a collection of short stories in between those two. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... I have, I've been working on a book for a few years. I, I put it down for a while and started something else, and now I'm back to the first book. And so it's, it's not a terribly efficient process, I'm afraid. But yes, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing something else. Is it in Bakerton? No, it's not. It's a Boston novel. Oh. Um, I find what I've, I've done over the last few years is sort of toggle back and forth between those two landscapes. Uh, I write a book that is you know, set in Appalachia, and I find the experience so emotionally exhausting that um, I'm really eager to, to, to leave that place, you know, put it aside and go back and write about something else. And so I'll, I'll write an Appalachia book and then I'll write a Boston book. And then usually what happens is I find myself going back to Bakerton and, and finding another story that I'm burning to write that is set there. So it's kind of a back and forth thing. So do you think it's it's the... It's the class issue that might be exhausting is it, or just the, what is it? Oh, it's a heartbreaking place. Um, 
you know, it's, I grew up in a, in a town, it was a coal mining town when I was growing up there. And there was this sort of booming, you know, vibrant community. And uh, over the past few decades, it has been radically changed. And the mines have shut down. I don't think they're ever going to come back. There's, the town has really shrunk to um, just a shadow of what it once was. People have moved away in droves. Most, of, most people my generation and younger have had to move away just in order to find work. I mean, really economically, the place has kind of crumbled. So going back there is really, it's wrenching, I'll be honest with you. And writing a novel set there means that I have to live there in my imagination for three to five years. And it's often, for me, a psychically uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. I, so I grew up in, in northern Idaho in a similar situation. It was it was silver mining, so it was mm. un- underground mining, but it was the same mm. kind of boom and then bust. And I think where I, I, I moved away um, halfway through high school. And and so I think, you know, they kind of landed in more of like a, a tourism kind of spot at this point in time, as far as like mm. mining tours and ski hills. But yeah. Um, so Diamond in the Slush Pile, can you speak a little bit about <laughs> how you how you uh, were acquired by Storyfort and and uh, and what you're going to be speaking about? Sure, it's it's kind of a great story. So, um, fifteen sixteen years ago, um, my first story ever was published in the Idaho Review. And as I was um, talking to the people at Storyfort, I uh, realized that, you know, the people who worked on that story were still around. And uh, we decided it would be really cool to sit down, you know, the three of us together and talk about the process of how that story got picked out of the slush pile, how it came to be published, and, and what that meant for me as a young writer. As a writer, you never forget the, the first editor to believe in your work and publish you. And so I have, you know, such a wealth of warm feeling toward the Idaho Review and such gratitude toward the people who um, saw value in that early story of mine. So that's what we're going to be talking about, that whole editorial process and how you, how you get that first break as a writer, how you begin to publish and, and what happens next. And so what was that first story about? Um, it's, the story is called Things I Should Have Said. It's, it's quite short. And it's a it's a story about divorce, I would say, without giving too much away. And and was it just random luck, or you know, was there? Is, is it so? You'll, you, the, Mitch Wyland is that his name? Is he on that? Yes. Book? Yeah. Yes. And so he was the editor yes. at the uh, at the Idaho Review yes. at that time. Correct. Mm-hmm. And was this so? Uh, I think if I read your bio correct, you went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. Yes. And so was that before that or after that? Um, I was a student at the workshop when this story uh, was accepted and was published. So I had just I had just started. I was in the first year of my MFA program um, when they um, told me they were going to publish that story. All right. So here's like a like a strange turn but um did you experience any iowa politics when you were there i i have this in my head because there's just been so much focus on the the iowa uh, primary that's coming up i'm just wondering if you experienced that first uh, 
Um, Well, you know, I was a student at the workshop um, the year uh, Bush ran against Gore, and I watched those election returns in in Iowa City. Um, in you know that contested election, where we stayed up all night looking at uh, looking at the results coming in. Um, so I was not in Iowa during the caucus, but I was in Iowa during arguably the most contentious um, political runoff we have ever seen in this country. It was quite something. Yeah, yeah. The whole the all the caucusing is just so fascinating. And then the moment's over, and, it is. and we forget about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> are you able to speak at all about what you're working on now, or do you usually just try and keep that under wraps until you are finished with it? I, I never talk about work in progress uh, for the simple reason that uh, more than once I've had a novel just fall apart in my hands. Um, there was once I spent an entire year on a novel. And, and when I say an entire year, I don't, I don't do anything else. You know, I don't have a job. I don't teach. I didn't write a book review. I don't have kids. I was doing absolutely nothing else for a solid year of my life. But, but working at this novel um, and writing hundreds of pages. And, and at the end of the year, I threw it away and I haven't looked at it since. And I'm sort of haunted by that experience. I'm very aware that that could happen to me again, and it probably will at some point if I keep trying to write novels. It's just that when you start out to write a new one, there's never any guarantee. You know, when I was writing my first novel, I thought, okay, well, this is hard, but after this, it will be easier because then I'll know how to write a novel. And while that's true, but what I learned was, yes, I know how to write a novel, but I only know how to write that novel. And so there's always that feeling that every single time I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a complete amateur and, uh, you know, who am I fooling thinking I can do this? So I still have in the back of my mind, well, this, this might not work. So better keep quiet about it. And that has been my rule ever since. Would you, would you say that it's, it's fairly unusual for professional writers to be able to sustain themselves just on their writing alone without any like side teaching jobs? Oh, I don't know. It depends on what it depends on what you write and how fast you write and and crucially, how willing you are to be poor. And and I think part of the reason I am able to do it, um, at least so far, is that I'm pretty good at being poor. And also, I don't have children. So nobody is depending on me to put them through college. I think that, you know, if you have more uh, financial obligations in your life, it can be absolutely impossible to do this. But because my life is fairly streamlined, I can sort of do it. And what about, like, how productive can you be? How many hours can you actually uh, work a day? Well, well, those are sort of two different questions, you know, productivity and how much time you spend. Yeah. Um, you know, I, often there is not a, a, a lot of correlation between the two. Uh, when I'm starting a new novel, like, I work a very short day because I just don't know very much. So I'll work for an hour or two, and then that's it. I, I don't know anything else, and uh, I can't do anything more. As I get further into the writing process, I can write a longer and longer day. And, and when I'm working on a final draft, I could certainly work eight or ten hours. But that isn't true for the first few years of writing a novel. The day gets progressively longer as I get further into the story. Hmm. And then, so, so I, I saw Jennifer Egan talk about how she writes everything in longhand, longhand 
with a pen on on paper, and she she does about three pages a day, and that's a good day for her. Do you uh, mm. do you have any interesting quirks like typewriters or different things that you do that uh, you don't have to trick yourself into working or anything like that? Do you? Uh, yes, I'm con- I constantly have to trick myself into working, and I find that these tricks work for a little while, and then they stop working, and I have to find a new trick. Um, I do write longhand uh, quite a bit. I haven't done all my books that way, but my second one, certainly I wrote entirely longhand. Um, a lot of my short stories I've written longhand. Usually it's a mix of um, pen and paper and working at the keyboard. Um, typically what I do is compose, you know, a page or two longhand and then later in the day I'll go to the keyboard and sort of do what is essentially a second draft on the same day of that material. And in, in that, in that space, it, the, the work changes dramatically. I throw away a lot of it. Um, I reimagine some of it. I write new things when I'm at the keyboard. Um, and, and then I sort of repeat the process again the next day. So, so that's kind of how I've been working on this book. Um, but, you know, it varies a lot depending on the material. And um, not every book has come about in the same way for me. So it's really, I'm always, I'm always starting at zero and kind of figuring out how this particular book needs to be written. Oh, and so, and I just recalled, so the reason why Jennifer Egan said that is because she needed to get ahead of her brain somehow. Like she didn't want to she needed, mm. you know, the the flow of the whatever was coming out of her. She didn't want any impediments. But then the other thing I just remembered is that uh, I think your writing practice might be similar to Jonathan Franzen's in that you need like to block out the world completely. You actually do you actually wear earplugs? Oh, I absolutely wear earplugs. Um, I wear earplugs for almost all of my life because I, I acquired the habit of sleeping with them when I lived in New York City. There was simply no other way I could sleep coming from a small town. And so I have, I have retained that habit throughout my adult life. I wear them to sleep. I wear them to write. Um, so that's part of it for me. But for me, um, the really important part is not having um, Wi-Fi. And I find that has been absolutely ruinous to my writing. Uh, for most of my writing life, I have actually gone so far as to rent an office space um, where I don't have Wi-Fi. I'll, I use an old desktop computer from which I have removed the wireless card. So it, I can't get online no matter what. I don't take a phone with me. I really do not want to be able to reach the outside world when I'm working. Um, I, when I see writers you know, working in coffee shops, listening to music, looking at laptops, checking email, I, I don't know how anybody gets any writing done that way. I don't have very good powers of concentration. And if there's anything interesting going on around me, it's it's really fatal to my writing. But then in terms of, so like, I've thought about that same thing, where it's just the temptation to check whatever it is there is too great. And so, mm, yeah. <laughs> um, but as far as research, is that like a, a much different process for you that happens before then? And you you have all that, all your ducks in a row before you start writing? It's not quite that efficient. I would like it if it works that way, and I tried to do that, but it, it never really works out like that. Uh, in writing Heat and Light, uh, my last novel, I had to do a tremendous amount of research. And so I did a, a good bit of it on the front end. Probably the, the first six months or so, I did a ton of research. But then I found that as I started writing, there was still a lot more I needed to learn. So typically what I would do is 
um, save the afternoons for doing research, and I would come home and get online and, and do whatever researching I needed to do that way. But when I was working in the morning in my studio, I had no way of um, tracking down information then. So they were really two distinct processes. The morning was, was for composing, and the afternoon was for doing more research as needed. And then what about your – so I it, – it seemed like everything was – so stable for so long and then all of a sudden all these computers got involved in our lives and do you still read and like to read paper books or do you do you read digital books too or do you listen to books I do all the above I really prefer a physical book and that's mainly what I do when I'm at home the only time I ever um, read ebooks is when I'm traveling for a long period of time to a country uh, where I don't have access to a lot of English language books. Uh, for instance, I spent three months in China a few years ago, and um, the selection of English language books is very limited. A lot of them are censored. They're quite expensive. And so I, I knew going there, I was not going to have access to everything I wanted to read. So then it was very lovely to be able to download eBooks you know, to an iPad and read them that way. But as soon as I came back, I stopped doing that because I really prefer not to look at a screen. I really like to, to hold a physical book in my hand. Um, I listen to audiobooks now and again, but I don't drive very much. So, so I don't have much occasion for that kind of listening. If I'm doing a long road trip, I, li I listen to audiobooks. Um, but mostly I'm just um, doing it the old fashioned way. And then have you listened to any of the, your own books? And, you know, what do you make of, you know, somebody else reading your work? Oh, it's weird. It's weird. I, I've started to listen to all of them. They all exist in audio versions. And I've started to listen to all of them, and I last maybe a minute or two. It's too strange to me. Um, I think all the, the actors who've read them are very good. Yes. Um, you know, I, I'm very pleased with the, with the job they did, but it's just too weird to hear my words coming out of somebody else's mouth. So I've not listened to them. Well, so uh, in terms of, I'm, like, that's something that I'm curious about. As far as editing goes, do you do, uh, is it all in your head or are you reading some of it out loud and listening to how it sounds? I read everything out loud as I'm working. I mean, every sentence. I've read out loud to myself many, many, many times, particularly in a short story, which for me is all about the language. Um, it's, I would be unable to work if I couldn't read out loud. Yeah. Well, so the, in Faith, the reader was giving some of the uh, the kind of the quintess, quintessential like Boston A sounds, and I thought that was that was pretty interesting. Mm. But I don't know if if that was your intention or not. You know, so like when well, that's how I hear it in my head, you know, yes, yes, that is how I hear it in my head. So, so I'm glad to know that I've not actually listened to that audio book, but, but that, that sounds right to me. Yeah. Have you been reading anything that you're loving or anything you'd want to share? I'm reading a novel right now that I'm absolutely mesmerized by, and it's been out for a few years and I don't know how it took me so long to get around to reading it. Uh, the writer's name is Joanna Scott. I've never read her before. I know nothing about her. This novel is called Careers for Women. And it's sort of a, a mystery story um, that is a, a truly literary novel. It's formally very inventive and surprising. And you just don't know 
you just don't know where she's going to go next in this thing. She's got a wonderful style. I'm so impressed with this novel. Well, so the reason why I chose Faith and Patchett, I was kind of obsessed with her, her book, The Dutch House. Um, Cause mm. it, it was set in, is, is Sheila from Pennsylvania? Is that where she's living at the beginning of the story? Um, she lives there, but she's from Boston. Yeah. Cause that, that was a, I, on this show, we really like synch synchronicity. And so I thought, well, that's close enough. I think I, I want to spend more time with a, with a family from that part of the world. Um, have, have you bumped mm. into that one? Uh, yes, yes, I read it. I liked it very much. Yeah. Well, so we're nearing the end. Do you synchronicity is is kind of a, a fun topic that I enjoy. Um, it's it's interesting because sometimes writers like real life is often stranger than fiction. You wouldn't be able to get away with um, you know interesting coincidences in fiction because then your readers would think that it's uh it's it's not real. It's like just put together you know mm -hmm. for the sake of the story but have you experienced any interesting synchronicities or any any interesting coincidences that that you couldn't actually write about because they would be unbelievable hmm i mean you're right coincidence is very tricky in fiction i know as a reader i i i will always call bullshit unconvenient coincidence in fiction and yet it happens all the time in life uh, but you're right. There's you, there's a lot of that you cannot do in fiction. I'm trying to think of an ex example of, of. I don't know that I have an entertaining example for you. Well, have you ever been to Boise, Idaho before? I have driven through Boise, Idaho. Yes, I've driven cross country and driven through Boise. So I'm I'm very excited to come and actually spend a little time. And then as as far as the actual music festival itself. Are you going to be here for an extended period of time or just, you know, only a, a short period of time? Will you, be, will you be able to enjoy any of the festival? And have you checked anything out? Are you looking forward to anything? Um, I'm really excited to come. I'll be there for sort of a long weekend, and I, I intend to hear as much music as I possibly can. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. That was 42 minutes. Okay. You've been listening to Jennifer Haig on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. Check out her work at her website, jennifer-haig.com, which we'll link to, as well as its tree fort this spring in Boise, Idaho. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And the story of my family changes with the teller. Run around, run away from your America while it burns in the streets. I'll be here standing on top of the mountain, shouting down what I see. Seen the pig with the pop out of confusion that he tried to release. Seen the sun coming over the horizon, straight across from the east. Seen the kings and the soldiers, all the throne and consume.
from the shadows, from the jaws of the beast. And it come from the pages of infinity, shaking what you believe. And it come from the ashes of ashes, so immune to Come together, we are the rain of the fire that's coming down. 